Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with the unceremonious and abrupt firing of Fox News' highest-paid and highest-rated primetime presenter, Tucker Carlson, with little to no explanation from the Murdoch family after Carlson had promised on his Friday show to be back on Monday. With speculation that his firing was a result of the Dominion settlement, that it was prompted by a discrimination lawsuit filed by a former producer of his show, or that Rupert Murdoch was concerned about Carlson's insistence that undercover government agents were involved in the January 6th insurrection, all swirling around. We will speak with Ben Smith, the editor-in-chief of Semaphore and a former New York Times media columnist. He was previously the founding editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed News and has written about politics for Politico, the New York Daily News, the New York Observer, and the New York Sun. We will discuss his new book out next week, Traffic, Genius, Rivalry, and Delusion in the Billion-Dollar Race to Go Viral, and look into the false assumption that progressives would dominate social media and the attention economy from building the foundation of viral media only to find that right-wing populism has become a force propelled by Stephen Bannon, Andrew Breitbart, and Elon Musk and others. Then we'll explore further how the mighty have fallen with the sudden silencing of Fox News's loudest and most commanding voice that had Speaker McCarthy groveling to accommodate Tucker Carlson's whims, while Texas Governor Abbott is considering pardoning the killer of a Black Lives Matter protester just because Tucker said so on his broadcast. Joining us is Adele Stan, an independent journalist who is a longtime chronicler of the right wing of U.S. politics, a winner of the Hillman Prize in Opinion and Analysis Journalism. Her work has appeared in Mother Jones, The Nation, and The American Prospect, as well as on the op-ed pages of The New York Times and The Los Angeles Times. Then finally, you'll look into Ron DeSantis' faltering campaign for the Republican presidential nomination, which he has yet to announce, but is clearly raising money for, and assess how much the hype and desperate search for an alternative to Trump by Fox and the Republican donor class has invented a winner who is looking more and more like a loser. Joining us is Dr. Michael McDonald, a professor of political science at the University of Florida. He is the principal investigator on the Public Mapping Project, a project to encourage public participation in redistricting, and he's also the director of the United States Election Project. He's the author of From Pandemic to Insurrection, Voting in the 2020 U.S. Presidential Election. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Ben Smith, the editor-in-chief of Semaphore and a former New York Times media columnist. He was previously the founding editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed News and has written about politics for Politico, the New York Daily News, the New York Observer and the New York Sun. And he has a new book out next week, Traffic, Genius, Rivalry and Delusion in the Billion Dollar Race to Go Viral. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ben Smith. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Ben, and I I want to obviously talk about your new book, Traffic, Genius, Rivalry, and the Delusion in the Billion Dollar Race to Go Viral, and also your interview that you did with Tucker Carlson, a rather contentious one, last July. But let's begin with, what do you make of the fact that uh, we learned today that Fox News have fired their highest paid, highest rated primetime 
presenter, Tucker Carlson, and have done so rather unceremoniously and abruptly without any explanation, particularly after Tucker Carlson had promised on his Friday show to be back on Monday. I mean, you know, first of all, we, we don't yet really know the cause. We might never. It does. Um, it, but, but I think clearly it was not a change of heart by a 92-year-old Rupert Murdoch about, you know, his profound political commitments or anything. Something happened. And in cable news, when you throw somebody off without giving them a chance to say goodbye, it really means something very specific happened. This is somebody getting fired for cause. Um, but, you know, whatever the HR dimension of it is, I mean, you know, Carlson's this incredibly important American political figure who was really one of the leading voices of this new populist right and is about to lose his, lose his most powerful, they're losing their most powerful voice. Well, that's what I find extraordinary is that, you know, Speaker McCarthy pandered to him by giving him all the Capitol Hill footage, which he was able to edit into an alternative version of what happened on January the 6th. Texas Governor Abbott is considering pardoning the killer of a Black Lives Matter protester just because Tucker Carlson said so on his broadcast. And now it feels like uh, the mighty have fallen. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean... He's an enormously powerful figure. And I think in a way more, you know, had sort of detached from the Murdoch family control of the thing and certainly was paying no attention to whatever management in, in New York or Los Angeles was telling him to do and was running his show as a sort of personal thief and, you know, really having a huge impact on American politics. And Republican politicians were rushing to kiss his ring, not Rupert Murdoch's. Um, and I don't, maybe that also was hard to take. But at the same time, again, I don't think this was some, this doesn't, is not a well orchestrated strategic change in direction. This is a very, very abrupt decision. And who do you think made the decision? I mean, ostensibly, Rupert Murdoch's son, Lachlan, is running the network from Australia, which is, an, is odd in itself given the different time zone. Yeah, I mean, you would know, but it does seem kind of far to run a company. It's a long commute. Um, right. No, I mean, you know, it, it's a very strange situation. Murdoch, I mean, the Murdoch empire has always been this kind of shambolic place with relatively weak executives and a very strong chairman in, in Rupert Murdoch who intervenes very decisively, makes a lot of the key decisions himself and lets a lot of stuff slide in the meantime. And, you know, Fox, very strange company whose CEO is Murdoch's elder son, Lachlan, who had been forced out in a prior iteration when he lost a battle with the help, basically, um, you know, does not seem to be the world's most engaged CEO. And there's a very, very highly compensated general counsel in Los Angeles, Viet Din, a plugged in Republican lawyer who does a lot of what you consider running the place. Um, but then what's strange about it is that, you know, the nobody comes to the office. Carlson was recording from his homes in Maine and in Florida. Sean Hannity has a studio is also outside the building, you know, people, particularly since COVID, but really all along, never go in, don't seem to treat the management with a ton of respect. I mean, it's an extreme case of what often happens in television, where you have these very highly compensated celebrities who think they run the place. Well, that's been one of the rumors I've seen in, in the many articles being written today. Obviously, a lot of speculation, one of which is that it was because of his comments about management that he was fired. Others suggest that there may be some connection with the Dominion settlement, which is yet to be made public in full. Do you buy any of that speculation? Um, you know, I, I don't want to get ahead of myself on the speculation, but and the two, I mean, right, and and there could there were certainly redacted passages in the in the Dominion documents, and you know, we all, I mean, we all got a, lot, a look at a bunch of emails in which he was saying disgusting things about women. There is a producer suing uh, for sexual discrimination for sort of classic hostile workplace stuff that could also have played a role. Um, but yeah, but, but we don't really know. We just know it was really abrupt. Well, one of the things that about about Lockton Murdoch, it appears that he's very thin-skinned about criticism because he went after a, an Australian news website called Crikey that had suggested that he bear some responsibility for what happened, or Fox News bear some responsibility for what happened on January the 6th. Is there any sense anywhere from your 
knowledge of this family and the power that they wield. I mean, I recall in the popular TV show, Secession, which is based on the, on the Murdochs, when the patriarch was confronted about something that was embarrassing on the network, he said, we don't do shame. And that's sort of my take on the Murdochs, is that they don't apologize. You can't yeah, they, shame they, they, they write a check and move on. I mean, I, yeah, I don't really see any reason to think that this represents some profound change of heart in the way they do business. Uh-huh. So tell us about your interaction then back in July with Tucker Carlson when you interviewed him for Semaphore and it sort of turned contentious and he, he tried to sort of steamroll you, right? Um. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's sort of his thing. But yeah, I mean, he, you know, he's a combative and incredibly technically gifted broadcaster. It was kind of a tough interview. <laughs> and you asked him about his, <laughs> whether he had political ambitions. <laughs> and Yeah, he uh, laughed it. He laughed it off. But, you know, he's unemployed now. Right. Well, that's the interesting question, isn't it, uh, Ben Smith, is, is, would they have tied him up in a in a contract that prevents him from joining other outlets? Because one of the things that we learned from the court filings in the Dominion case was that Fox's Fox News and Fox Management are actually telling the truth for them is bad for business. They were terrified that their audience, if they told the truth about Donald Trump not winning the election, that their audience would defect to Newsmax and AON. So could Tucker Carlson defect or pick up a job? I mean, already the Russian no, RT no, offered, offered him a job. Yeah, I mean, no, you know, he could certainly try to start his own thing as the last person who had that chair at Fox and flew really close to the sun, Glenn Beck, did, with mixed results, but certainly nothing like the level of cultural relevance you have when you're in that chair at Fox. And that's not because Fox viewers don't feel connected to the talent, but it's, it's hard to emphasize how old that audience is. It's not a download a new app, check out the new tech audience. It is a speak out loud to your remote audience, um, which isn't to say that they aren't you know, smart or anything. It's just not like early, early technical adapters. And so it's a little challenging, I think, for some of those people to leave the Fox platform where people at you know, where if you're a YouTuber working for BuzzFeed, as some people were with me in the old days, pretty easy to go start your own YouTube channel. I, I think actually it's pretty tough for someone like Tucker to take a really large share of that audience with him off of cable television. Well, he's already been offered a job at RT. I'm not sure that, that he will take it. But, um, they've yeah, it doesn't, doesn't seem likely. <laughs> so, so let's talk then about your new book, Traffic, genius, rivalry, and delusion in the billion-dollar race to go viral, in which you profile people that you worked with, particularly uh, Jonah Peretti of Huffington Post and BuzzFeed and Nick Denton of Gorka Media. And I guess, in a way, it answers the puzzling question of why it is, or begins to answer the puzzling question of why it is that Internet news, which was assumed after the successful election of Barack Obama, moveon.org, org, etc., the notion being that there would be a sort of new progressive era within uh, digital internet news. But then it turns out that quite the opposite seems to happen, that there's been a powerful force of right-wing populism that's captured much of internet news, and three-quarters of Americans at least, or two-thirds, get their news from Facebook and Stephen Bannon, Breitbart, and others have been powerful voices. So, what happened to that delusion? I guess is that. I mean, I think, and this is sort of what I write about in the book: is is this was this very kind of progressive new internet scene that kind of I think believed that it, the culmination of its work was the election of Barack Obama, and then it really turned out that the same tools were made even more effective use of by the right, and that in some ways this the real culmination of the kind of social media era in the U.S. was the election of Donald Trump. And one of the canards that's been out there forever is that there's, which you hear always on, on the right, which is there's such a thing as the liberal media. And in response 
to that canard, it seems quite often than not that the so-called liberal media moves the goalposts to accommodate that canard. Would you, do you accept that thesis? Um, I think it's complicated. I think the liberal media gets things wrong sometimes and, and is subject to sometimes healthy, sometimes deranged criticism. But is there such a thing as a dominant liberal media when Fox's ratings are so much higher? Uh, recently, Tucker Carlson's well, got $7 I mean, million. I would just, yeah, I mean, Fox obviously has the largest ratings on television. I mean, although, you know, ABC News, for instance, gets $10 million every night. Mm-hmm. And I would say that there, you know, if you are, there's, uh, if you look at aggregate, there are more people consuming news from the old broadcast and the, you know, whatever you want to call them, center, center left cables than, than from Fox and Fox. But it's not really parallel. Like those places employ journalists and do news gathering and Fox basically doesn't like spend is a media critic that like is largely does media criticism and attacks the other places. Like that's its role in the ecosystem. It's not a mirror image of CNN. It doesn't gather information really. Well, I just was mentioning that uh, Tucker Carlson's recent interview with Donald Trump broke all cable records with 7 million viewers. He, he normally gets a little over 3 million a night, which is better than anybody else. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's absolutely right. And I think, you know, it is this strange situation where the more closely you connect with that audience, the sort of closer you fly to the sun. And, you know, Bo, and, and I think he clearly just totally you know, captured and was captured by Fox's audience. And I, and I think that often did freak people out at Fox. So your book also deals with the, the behemoth Facebook. And I mentioned, I'm not sure the exact figures, whether two-thirds or three-quarters of Americans get their information from Facebook, which tends to sort of reinforce their already predisposed views. In other words, are we in post-truth America to the extent that... Uh, you know, going back to the days of Walter Cronkite, there was a kind of consensus in the country about what was true and what was real. And now people do reality shopping. Liberals get their information from MSNBC, yeah, I mean, conservatives and Fox. I think that has in some ways been the uh, been what it's like for a while. But I think we're in a moment of really profound change. People are unplugging from social media and the table numbers, even the largest use site in a country of 350 million people aren't that big. I mean, you know, the old days that you invoke, Walter Cronkite, you had like half the country watching the same television program. There's nothing like that now. And I think we're probably headed into a more splintered environment. One of the things I find extraordinary is that Fox News, without advertising, would still be in profit because of the cable deals it makes. So that leaves liberals actually ending up uh, by watching cable news. They're actually subsidizing Fox News. Is there any way to get out of that trap? I mean, you know, the cable business will, gra- will will gradually die and be replaced by something else. But right now, the cable bundle is this incredibly lucrative source of, you know, it's just incredibly important source of revenue to, to basically all of television, even as it, which, which gives it outsized budgets and cultural power in some ways, even as it fades as a place where people, you know, watch people consume their news. Well, Ben Smith, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Good talking to you. And again, I've been speaking with Ben Smith, who's the editor-in-chief at Semaphore and a former New York Times media columnist. He was previously the founding editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed News and has written about politics for Politico, the New York Daily News, the New York Observer, and the New York Sun. And his new book out next week is Traffic, Genius, Rivalry, and Delusion in the Billion-Dollar Race to Go Viral. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into how the mighty have fallen with the sudden silencing of Fox News' loudest and most commanding voice. I'm sick and tired of hearing things from uptight, short-sighted, narrow-minded hypocrites. All I want is the truth. Just give me some truth. I've had enough of reading things by neurotic, psychotic, pig-headed politicians. All I want is the truth. Just Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Adele Stan, an independent journalist who is a longtime chronicler of the right wing of U.S. politics. 
a winner of the Hillman Prize in Opinion and Analysis Journalism. Her work has appeared in Mother Jones, The Nation, and The American Prospect, as well as on the op-ed pages of The New York Times and The Los Angeles Times. Welcome to Background Briefing, Adele Stan. Great to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Adele. And this unceremonious and abrupt firing, uh, without any explanation or little to no explanation, from Fox News about firing Tucker Carlson after he had promised on his program on Friday that he would be back on Monday is yeah. very puzzling. And obviously, I, you know, I don't like giving this guy a lot of oxygen, but something is clearly going on here. And our previous guest, uh, Ben Smith, editor-in-chief of Semaphore and former New York Times media columnist, he thinks that there's something happened very recently, presumably, that we simply don't know about. Mm. What What's your explanation, or what do you? What's your suspicion here? Because obviously, if he thought he was going to be back on the air on, on Monday, and they don't even want him to go on the air now, so right. leave him, give him the opportunity to to you know explain himself or defend himself or whatever. So something abruptly happened um, over the weekend, and do you have any idea what that might have been? You know, I, I, it's there's so much going on around Fox News and and um, with with regard to these various lawsuits, not just the Dominion suit that they're paying seven hundred eighty-seven million dollars to Dominion, uh, the electoral system maker, but there's also you know another one of these cases in the offing and a lawsuit by a producer, a former producer for Tucker Carlson, who is alleging um, that she was, you know, forced to falsely testify in the Dominion case, and also that Tucker ran a very sexist and harassing um, newsroom. So, and I mean, there's rumors on, on, um, on, you know, from credible journalists on Twitter saying that Murdoch himself fired Carlson over something having to do with the harassment lawsuit. So I think it's sort of anybody's guess, but I mean, they knew they were um, treading a razor's edge with Carlson in some kind of a way. They had to have understood that there were risks involved in the way his rhetoric was just so, so, so over the top, Um, but it was working. It was working in terms of keeping eyeballs on Fox News. So, uh, you know, they're reaping some kind of reward, but I don't know that I know exactly what it is. I mean, the other thing was, was there anything said about Carlson's fate in the settlement um, that Fox uh, made with Dominion? Perhaps unlikely, but we don't know the details of that settlement. So (laughs) I'm sort of at the same loss as everybody else. Well, you mentioned Abby Grossberg, the former Fox News producer who is suing Fox. She worked for Tucker Carlson. She was his booker, and she described him as a vile misogynist. Yeah. I don't know whether that... I mean, one of the things that I find extraordinary about the settlement with Dominion is the $787.5 million settlement. Fox Mm -hmm. is probably not going to end up paying a penny because... What? Half of that money is going to be cut down by an insurance that they have, and I'm not sure what kind of insurance you'd get against this kind of reckless behavior, but apparently they have some kind of insurance that would cut the seven hundred eighty seven. Well, libel insurance. They probably have libel insurance. Yeah, libel I mean, insurance. That's okay, pretty so, standard, yeah. And so then that cuts it in half. And then the other, what the remaining amount that they owe would be written off as a tax, an expense, as a, you know, as oh a loss. Oh, my goodness. So, wow. I, but does that mean, though, if they've just gotten away with essentially not having, having to pay $757 million and not actually having to pay it, next time around $2.7 billion is what Mark Maddox wants, would the right. same liable fund still be around? Would the insurance companies still want to write up those kind of policies? Yeah, yeah. One couldn't. One one can imagine that. You know, you would think that the whatever libel, um, you know, libel insurance um, holder they they had wouldn't want to um, would want to drop them as a client. Um, so 
I do think there's probably more at stake with the Smartmatic case, given the parameters that you've just outlined about, you know, that they really don't have to pay much of anything on the Dominion settlement. It does look as though they could really be much more liable uh, to dig into their own treasury um, for any settlement they make with Smartmatic. But, I mean, Lordy, they're just a big old mess. And um, and then you add in the fact that there are family d- dynamics involved um, in, in News Corp., the parent cor- corporation of Fox News, and all of that stuff. And it really is just really looks like a, like a torrent of chaos now, doesn't it? Well, what was the uh, sourcing on the report that Murdoch Sr., the 90, what is he, 92? Yeah, 92. That was Keith Olbermann. Uh-huh. Okay. Keith Olbermann, um, you know, has his now his own sort of uh, platform enterprise, um, uh-huh. and he does it on, he and he announces stuff on Twitter, and that's what he is announcing, that uh-huh. he has this breaking. So that's all I know on that. Um, and it had something to do with Abby Grossberg's? Case. Case, yeah. that there's some new yeah, information. Yeah, that's what he's saying. Uh-huh. That, that's all I have. <laughs> right, but what about, when you talk about family dynamics, we know that the patriarch, Rupert Murdoch, mm. uh, put his oldest son, Lachlan, in charge of the network, even though Lachlan oh, lives, right. in, lives in Australia with a different time zone, which makes it odd to be running a company which apparently doesn't run on a hands-on basis. The lawyer out, right-wing lawyer out here, Viet Ding, in Los Angeles, uh, seems to be the hands-on guy. Him and his brother had to have some kind of falling out, or his brother actually, James, who's apparently the more reasonable one, whereas Lachlan apparently is even more right-wing than his father is, um, mm-hmm. ends up with the chairmanship. But what's the story with James? Is he he's off on his own, right? It well, that's if... what the impression one would get just from media reports. But, but truth be told, I know that you know the you know much more of the history of the Murdochs and the um, you know and Fox News than I. I mostly look at the political dynamics in the U.S. Mm-hmm. that you know Fox News shapes. However, I, so I'm ask, I'm going to turn it on you and ask <laughs> your take on that. <laughs> well, I, I yeah I. I don't know exactly what went on there, but apparently the more reasonable brother couldn't stomach what they were putting out. I think maybe uh, January the 6th might have been too much for him as well. Yeah, um, right, right. That's, but, that's um, kind of the, what I had been gleaning. Right. But Lachlan, apparently, is so sensitive about, thin-skinned about criticism that he sued a website in Australia called Crikey that had suggested that Fox News bears responsibility for January the 6th, and that really ah. got under their skin. So I'm wondering whether any of this stuff is getting under their skin, all of these damaging releases from the court filings from, from uh, the Dominion case, which reveals their unbelievable cynicism. How, one, that they're not really a news organization, and two, they actually are afraid of the truth, and they, are, they recognize that the truth is bad for business, so therefore they continue to flog these disgusting lies that are dividing the country, and they continue to stoke paranoia on the right, which has led to, you know, the January the 6th, just led to right. the, the assault on Pelosi's husband, etc. And it, uh, it, it supported the Tea Party movement from the outset too. I right. mean, Fox News was really, you know, an incon contributor to that to right. that movement. You know, um, yeah. I mean, it, I I think they're so used to getting away with everything. And by the way, I got to say, Crikey is a great name for a website. Right. <laughs> but <laughs> but I think they're so used to just getting away with everything that. And somebody like Lachlan, who you can imagine that that privileged, you know, life that he has led since birth. I mean, that that this must be shocking. And really, you gotta give a certain amount of of hand credit to the judge in the Dominion case, who was the person who allowed this really sweeping 
um, discovery process, which is how we know so much about what was going on internally with what people like Carlson and uh, Laura Ingram and uh, Sean Hannity were saying about the claims that were being made on their shows by the likes of Sidney Powell, um, you know, advocates for the position, uh, the falsehood that somehow the election had been stolen. Well, Smart Maddox has said, Dad, that they will pursue even more information and uncover more information and make it public. They've also said that they will demand an apology from Fox. Now, that clearly did not happen in the Dominion case, and I don't know... It was a disappointment to a lot of people. Right. So they took the money and ran, as opposed to some kind of moral victory. But what's happened, apparently, is that Fox's ratings have gone up since this happened. Their own people have not heard anything about the settlement or the trial or anything. They're completely sealed off from reality. And, but they will notice. And by that, their own people, you mean their audience, right? Yeah, they're, 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 their they're audience don't know anything. But, but yeah, yeah, the audience is yeah. sure as hell going to notice that Tucker Carlson's not there, right? Right, right. And they're just, and they don't even have a plan. I mean, this, you're right. It had to, you know, Ben is, is, is right. It had to have been something that happened this weekend and, because it is so abrupt and there's no plan, right? It's not like they have a plan for what to do. They're just going to put a rotating cast of hosts in that slot until they figure it out. And that's the coveted slot, right? That's the 8 p.m. slot. So, I mean, it, it does seem like like there's, there's, there's some ungluing going on at Fox, and it's very difficult to read the tea leaves. Um, and part of that is because there is, it, it, so much of it is controlled by one family. And it makes things rather opaque. Right, but it is it is a public company, though. I know it's a, it's a very weird hybrid, isn't it? Because it behaves very much like a like a privately held family business, but it's not. Um, and, I mean, like the and Trump organization, <laughs> right? Or the Coke, or the Coke Brothers Enterprise, or you know, yeah. Mike Lindell's Enterprise. They're all they're all you know. Uh, privately held companies. And Fox News seemed to behave very much like one until it's like, until it starts like really shedding advertisers and they've got shareholders to account to for that or something like, you know, when there's one of those kind of crises. Right, but but one of the things that's just absolutely mind-boggling is that that even if they lost all of their advertisers on Fox News, they'd still be massively in profit because of the way they shake down the cable companies to mm. get cable fees that are far higher than MSNBC and CNN get. And they extort the cable companies if anybody, even by saying, you know, telling their listeners that they're going to be cut off and they have to call in, and, and that way they buffalo the cable companies into giving them, a, you know, a bigger fee per subscriber, which means wow. that you and I end up, subsidizing Fox, even though we don't watch it. I mean, I sometimes watch it because I have to, but uh, right. uh, it's not a pleasant experience. <laughs> you watch it so your listeners don't have to. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it is, you know, that that whole thing, and I must confess, I don't even think about that very much, but that is a significant thing that it can, that it, it can afford to shed advertisers in a way that MSNBC or CNN cannot, that, that their model is more advertising-based. Um, that's really significant. And the other thing I'm thinking about, you know, I know I'm kind of all over the map, but about the discovery process, I'm wondering what the discovery process in the Abby Roseberg case is revealing, you know? I mean, is that something that came to light this weekend? I don't know. Right. Well, the other thing that happened on this weekend was 60 Minutes did an interview with Ray Epps, uh, right. who's one of the you know the MAGA people that stormed the Capitol. But for some reason, I don't know how Tucker Carlson got a bee in his bonnet about this guy, but they tried to paint him as an FBI plant and suggest the whole right. thing was a kind of Antifa staged event to discredit the right. 
Right. And, of course, he got all that footage from uh, Kevin McCarthy. to try From and... Kevin McCarthy, which is just, I mean, I'm still apoplectic about that, you right. know. But they tried to create this alternative reality. So what did you make of this Epps guy? I mean, it, he said that, that Tucker Carlson's that he, been he, haunting him, he, that the guy's on a jihad against him. Well, they are, and it's this is one of those things that can happen in conspiracy theory world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're looking for a scapegoat in an alternate narrative, and they will scapegoat somebody to serve that narrative. Um, and my, um, I did read that uh, Carlson had picked this narrative up from a far-right website, and I cannot recall just which one, but I'm sure if let's right. just Google that, they'll find it. But, but the, guy, the uh, guy, Epps, said that it's ruined his life. I mean, so... I I'm sure whether, it has. I don't know whether Rupert was watching uh, 60 Minutes and thought, this is too much, you know, ruining mm-hmm. this poor guy's life. Doesn't sound like... Well, uh, I don't... I wouldn't think it would... <laughs> that, that the issue for Rupert would be compassion, but it might be, you know... Um, optics i don't know you know right. uh but but it's 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 quite true that they have just said them you know whenever a QAnon type um uh narrative is floated people get harmed real people get harmed and you know it seems to me that that narrative about Epps is coming out of that sort of corner of the conspiracy theory universe right well just in the last couple of minutes um then, Adele, there's also been a firing at CNN. Don right. Lemon on the mon- mm-hmm. morning program who recently said rather sexist things about one of the presidential campaigners on the Republican side. Um, mm-hmm. And girls' soccer, etc. I mean, upsetting the other two women on the morning show that he'd just been moved to. But it's right. getting dismal ratings, so I don't know whether... Do you have any idea why they fired him? Well, I mean, and he was not, first of all, in terms of he had no chemistry with his co-hosts because mm. he had offended them, right? And right. and it wasn't simply these comments he made about Nikki Haley, but he didn't just make them about Nikki Haley. He made them about women writ large, that women who, women were were past their prime once they were over 40, you know? And uh, and Nikki Haley is fifty one, and and she was then you know past well, her prime. Past his, he's past his prime too, isn't he? Isn't he in his Yes, 50s? but but he said women. He said women. <laughs> he's not a woman. Yeah, uh, yeah, well, for sure. And he's definitely now that he's been kicked out, he's past his prime, right? But uh, he had been moved to this morning show, which in, in, indeed was a demotion, and he would he would talk over his co-host. He wouldn't let them speak, you know, uh, that kind of thing. So he didn't have, he didn't do anything to create any internal support for himself. Uh, and if the show is, has lousy ratings as it is, and he's an irritant, uh, right. it, it doesn't surprise me that um, that they that they parted ways. That that CNN asked him to right. go. Um, but okay, it well, is, we're not going to shed know, the any tears. timing is interesting. Right. Yeah, right. Right, exactly. And it's well, too bad because, I mean, on the other hand, you know, in some ways he's a culture hero because he's an out gay man who is a host of, a, you know, a, a politics show on a, on a major cable news network. But, you know, that doesn't allow you to be a sexist jerk. Right. Well, Adele, I thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Well, always great to be with you, Ian. Good night. Thanks. And again, I've been speaking with Adele Stan, who's an independent journalist, who's a longtime chronicler of the right wing of U.S. politics, the winner of the Hillman Prize in Opinion and Analysis Journalism. Her work has appeared in Mother Jones, The Nation, and The American Prospect, as well as on the op-ed pages of The New York Times and The Los Angeles Times. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into Ron DeSantis' faltering campaign for the Republican presidential nomination, which he has yet to announce, but is clearly raising money for, and assess how much the winner is looking more and more like a loser.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Dr. Michael McDonald, who's a professor of political science at the University of Florida. He's a principal investigator on the Public Mapping Project, a project to encourage public participation in redistricting, and is also the director of the United States Election Project. And he's the author of From Pandemic to Insurrection, Voting in the 2020 U.S. Presidential Election. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Michael McDonald. Great to be with you yet again. Well, thanks for joining us, Michael. And you're obviously there in Florida. And the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, who's many have suggested is the challenger to Trump, if not the front front runner there for a while. He's raised a ton of money. But most analysts are saying he's been having a bad week and maybe there's less to him than meets the eye. That's what I've heard from analysts down in Florida. What's your opinion? Well, he certainly uh, has had a troubling uh, rollout for so far for his campaign, which has not officially declared yet, but he's all but a candidate, having uh, traveled around the United States to some of the early uh, nomination contest states uh, on a book tour. Um, and so he's doing the things that candidates do. We would assume that he's going to run for president. Um, and uh there was a moment there early after his um, gubernatorial win by about 20 points um, that it looked that as though um, he might overtake Trump uh, in the lead in the polling. There were actually some polls that had him um, leading Trump in the nomination contest. Now, not all of them did, and he wasn't able to sustain that lead. And so uh, now uh, the second guessing has come out and Trump um, at that time, back in November or December, was not really focused on attacking DeSantis. And since then, uh, Trump has turned his attention to DeSantis. And so um, he's uh, having to face being actually engaged with an opponent who is um, very well known, <laughs> obviously. And, uh, and he's so far falling short, as we can see uh, in his campaign. Well, falling short, he's almost 30 points behind. Yeah, I, you know, I, and we can talk about the strategy here and, and the tactics. Uh, you know, so there's, I think, really from an overall strategy standpoint, I think there's some real flaws in the way in which DeSantis is approaching Trump. Uh, but there are also some tactical um, uh, missteps that have been made along the way as well. But from an all, overall strategy standpoint, um, look, Trump is essentially the incumbent. I mean, I know he's not an incumbent president. He did not win the 2020 election, but um, he is the presumptive front runner. Of, he's the presumptive leader of the Republican Party. And you have, as any candidate who's going to oppose him in 2024 has to do, they have to um, uh, offer a change message to Republican voters. Uh, so they have to uh, make the case why it is that um, voters should abandon Trump and they should support him or her over Trump. And so it's very basic campaign 101 stuff. I'm a professor. I teach this sort of thing. I'm, I'm not giving away anything here that's, uh, that shouldn't be known to, to Santos's campaign staff, which is that you need to have a change message against Trump. Um, and so that's the overall strategy. But then we get into the tactics um, DeSantis has not really been able to effectively um, uh, really message that change message. I mean, he's he's uh, made himself position. He's tried to position himself as sort of MAGA without all the Donald Trump baggage. Um, but he won't go out and direct more directly criticize Donald Trump. And the key moment where things started turning south for DeSantis's campaign uh, was around the um, uh, the indictment for Trump. Um, and here was a prime opportunity for DeSantis to make that message and that argument to the Republican uh, electorate that, look, you know, Trump's got all this baggage. I am um, an alternative. I'll give you the policy that you want, um, uh, but without all of the, the problems that come with Trump. Um, but instead, he ran to support Trump and said that, well, I, I won't extradite Trump to New York for, you know, and, and 
Um, and so instead of arguing that and making that change message, um, which should be the overall strategy that the campaign has, uh, you know, tactically what he does is he goes and, and runs to Trump's uh, support. Um, and on the very thing on something like this sort of baggage, you know, on the tawdry stuff of paying off um, uh, mistresses, porn stars, while your wife <laughs> is you know, pregnant. Um, I mean, that, that should resonate with people, uh, you know, in the Republican Party. But again, he, he doesn't, he, he didn't have the sense, or his campaign staff didn't have the sense of gaming this out well in advance, knowing that Trump would be in, um, in legal trouble, um, knowing that he would be uh, called upon to answer questions regarding uh, Trump's legal problems, and he, and instead he runs to his rescue rather than uh, building a narrative about how Trump is old news and the party needs to move on. Um, you know, the one candidate who's not going to be <laughs> the nominee, but when I was watching that, there was only one candidate that I saw that um, had a good message. It was Asa uh, Hutchinson uh, from the former governor of um, uh, Arkansas, and he he said, "Look, look." Um, uh, when asked about Trump's indictment, he said, look, I'm not here to talk about Trump. That's that's old. That's past news. I'm here to talk about the future. That That's something that DeSantis had to have in his back pocket. He had to have that answer, something like that, um, where he doesn't directly criticize Trump. He lets other people do that. There's plenty of other people that are going to criticize Trump. Um, he takes the high road, but he talks about how he has a hopeful change for the future for the party. Um, and so, I, you know, that's just one among many instances where I could say that the campaign has made missteps. Um, but uh, that's really the, the turning point so far in the campaign and why now he's um, really lagging and, and, and seeing his full numbers crater against Trump at this point. Right. But Trump's out machoing him. He said that at one point he'd protect Trump from being arrested or extradited to New York. And of course, Trump just showed up voluntarily, so it made him look foolish. I mean, every time you see DeSantis, he's standing with these big cops behind him. You know, he wears cowboy boots to give himself a couple of inches of height because he's quite short. He, he's, he's just a terrible candidate in terms of He's uncomfortable with retail politics. I mean, he's shaking hands, kissing babies. That's not what he does. Uh, his own Florida uh, congressman delegation, people that served with him when he was in the Congress, uh, flocking to Trump. And Trump calls them up and wines and dines them and schmoozes them. And, and this guy just can't bring himself to do this. So... Is he arrogant? Uh, is he just thinking that I've got so much money? I mean, I don't understand. And why did he do all of these pandering to the far right behind closed doors in the dead of night, signing a bill where anybody in Florida can open carry, whether they're 18-year-olds, never had a gun before, crazy, you know it, name it, the most permissive gun law imaginable, and then a six-week abortion ban, and now he's going to go after immigrants, and, you know, when you look at the six weeks abortion ban, you think, that doesn't DeSantis know about the Dobbs decision and how unpopular it is? Well, um, you know, those are all strategic and tactical decisions his campaign are making. Um, I think the root of all of this goes back to the, um, the gubernatorial election in 2022, which um, DeSantis wins by a rather hefty margin. And the lesson that he took from that was that his um, approach to uh, politicking was a good approach because he was able to uh, win very decisively in a swing state. And um, it, it showed that his um, political acumen was very sharp. And that's why people are giving a lot of money to him. Now, I, I think if, if you really look much deeper at that election, um, he had a very weak candidate uh, in opposition to him, uh, Charlie Crisp, who did not make a good argument uh, that DeSantis needed to be displaced. Um, Crisp himself had trouble running an effective campaign because uh, DeSantis had been given um, you know, close to $100 million. Um, and Florida is a very expensive state to run in. And so national 
Democrats um, and others, you know, outside the state looked at Charlie Crist. They didn't particularly think he was a, a dynamic candidate himself. And they looked at the amount of money that they would have to spend in order to run, you know, prop up an effective campaign for Crist within Florida. And they all gave it a pass. And the result was, well, you know, DeSantis wins, but he wins largely because Democrats stay home. And um, but the campaign and his staff uh, take the lesson that, well, our politics, our style works really well. Um, and look, all these people are coming to him and giving him money and we're not even really having to work for it. So um, why should we have to work for it when we move out of the national landscape? And, you know, I, I had. Um, I, I said this months ago, I said that, you know, that things are going to be different when it, uh, we switch from this Florida centric uh, campaign to a national campaign um, and that uh, DeSantis needs to be prepared for um, uh, what's going to come, especially with Trump. I said this to you, <laughs> among other people. You know, so if you, you know, roll the tape a few months ago, you'll see me uh, you know, saying that, you know, that he, the circumstances are going to change. But I don't think his campaign learned that. I mean, I, or they didn't, didn't anticipate it. And again, if, you, if you're looking way inside baseball, uh, his staff is not um, the best staff that he could have for this, for a national campaign. Um, the, the woman who was uh, the engineer behind his 2018 uh, victory against Gillum in that uh, gubernatorial race, um, DeSantis came out and started attacking her because she was too close to Scott and um, uh, our other our U.S. senator, former governor. And so um, uh, she's actually now working with Trump. <laughs> so and she's got uh, daggers out uh, to, to, to tear DeSantis apart. So, um, you know, the, the sort of assistance that he could have um, that would be effective and, um, and the staff and, and, and everything else there, that, that infrastructure they could have to really help him build a national campaign, it's not there. And instead, again, you go way down into, into this news story, you find out that, um, well, he's like hiring these consultants and even the consultants don't like working with them. And some of them have quit um, because they, they don't like the, how his Florida staff um, handle him as a candidate. Um, and so, um, you know, it's if if I were to give one really solid piece of advice to DeSantis, look, he's still got enough time. He's got a lot of money. Um, it, the, the game's not over yet. Uh, and uh, although he's really dug himself a hole, so I'm not going to sugarcoat where you're at at the moment. But um, if he's got a chance, it's got to be he's got to have a shakeup of his campaign staff. He's got to take a new direction, and that's the, the uh, easiest way to do this. The tried and true method, if you look over the years, uh, um, like McCain in 2008 had a rocky start to roll out to his campaign. He fires the staff, they revamp, they change direction, he wins the nomination. So um, that's what I think he's faced at this point. And I don't know if he has the capacity to do it. I, I don't, you know, all the other national consultants are are looking at his campaign implode. Um, uh, they're not seeing a candidate that they believe um, necessarily that can uh, do the things that a candidate needs to do in order to win. Um, and so uh, um, it may be that the time has passed, but maybe there is somebody who can come on board and really write the ship for him. I, I, but it's gotta be something like that. There has to be a change uh, in, in his own campaign and ironically, that change has to be one that articulates very much a change message. But just in the last few minutes there, Michael, I mean, what is the reason why the Florida congressional delegation are, are supporting Trump and not him? And you mentioned his former campaign manager turned against him because she got fired by him. Apparently, the Republicans in the legislature have been carrying his water are unhappy that they've had to do all this work for him and not for their own interest in the state of Florida. So there has to be a reason why he behaves the way he does. And, and why did he pander to the far right in the dead of night with the gun carry decision and the six-week abortion ban? Again, doesn't he notice that these are unpopular? And Trump is just killing him with TV ads saying, I support Social Security and Medicare, and DeSantis wants to cut both. 
Yeah, well, again, I, these are big strategic decisions that were made by the campaign and um, early on. And so this was a, they, you know, at least give them credit that they're sticking to their um, their their strategy, their campaign strategy. Um, but um, that strategy appeared to be to out Trump Trump. And uh, that strategy works if people are sort of tired of the sort of vindictive um, and nasty politics that surrounds Trump. Um, and so what does DeSantis do? He picks battles with um, transgendered individuals and, and within the state of uh, Florida, which are an extremely small percentage of people. Um, but that's like, you know, uh, he wants to pick on um, out groups. Uh, it's an effective strategy for a bully, and um, it's something that resonates within the Republican base. And so um, he starts with that. He, he goes for other red meat issues and, and shows that he can deliver the policy that um, that Trump would deliver as well, but he can do it and he's more effective at doing it. So, you know, as a message, it, it sounds pretty good. It's just that he he can't make the next message, which is why you need to pick me over this guy, Trump, because look, Trump's the presumptive front runner. And I mean, he's leading in the polls and he's you know, the former president and he's got lots of money and, you know, and he's rolling up all these endorsements. And so um, you have to articulate why you're better than Trump other than just I'm Trump without the Trump. And again, there are just all these failings that go uh, from that flow out from that because he, he's unwilling to actually um, articulate that message that I'm better than Trump. Um, and and so, but why does he do it? I don't know. Uh, I, I, you know, all I can say is it, it's it's a bad decision. I don't know why he's made the bad decision that he has. But from a campaigning perspective, it's just a bad decision. That's all I can say. I have not. I have no special knowledge of uh, DeSantis's mind uh, as to why he does the things that he that he does. Well, Dr. Michael McDonald, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Oh, yep. Good talking with you. Well, thanks, Michael. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Michael McDonald, who's a professor of political science at the University of Florida. He is a principal investigator on the Public Mapping Project, a project to encourage public participation in redistricting, and also is the director of the United States Election Project. And he's the author of From Pandemic to Insurrection, Voting in the 2020 U.S. Presidential Election. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half